0: Good morning, Grace Point Church. I'm sure you guys are a little disappointed now. You're like, oh, Pastor Terrence is going to preach. Then he was like, nah. And then you're like, oh, we have to hear Andrew again. Then you're hearing all this transition over the last couple weeks, and you're like, you know, Pastor Ty hasn't been here in a while. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. He's on vacation. Grace Point Church, my name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here at Grace Point, and it is my joy My pleasure and honor to be up here preaching um, and worshiping with you today. To be honest, I get, how about our worship team, right? Like, I get so gassed up. Yeah. I get, every time, especially when getting ready for preaching, I get so gassed up. I want to, like, start dancing and moving around. But then I'm so, like, worried because I'm a low energy person. So, like, I'm going to, like, use it all and then I'm going to come up here and be like, and God's word said. But I'm so joyful to be here with you. I'm going to be mowing through content today, so please stay with me because Terrence had to steal some of my time. So I'm going to be moving fast, but please just walk with me and let's enjoy this this morning. First, I have a quick announcement for you. For any of you guys who know Carlos and Myra, they are part of the Grace Point family. They started the Give Foundation and became permanent missionaries down in El Salvador where they are doing some amazing work for the youth for the community, for the education system there. It's quite incredible. And this Sunday, we are starting our um, school drive, there we go, that's the word, school drive to help them get the supplies that they need for the next school year. It starts today and it ends July 24th. You might be thinking, why are we starting so early? Well, it actually takes like three months to ship stuff over there. So we're starting now and we wanna get all this stuff together now. Please hear this, this is the important part. We're not asking you to just go to the store, buy some items and come back. We have made a very specific list of items that they need and that they require, so please take your phone and scan the QR code or the black QR code on the seat back in front of you, scan that. There is an Amazon list, it is super easy. You can order from that, have it sent here, I believe? Question mark. Yes, there we go. Have it sent here, and we will take care of it from there. But please go through that list and order off of Amazon. If you pick up something from the store, we won't be able to take it because we have limited space and very specific items that we need to send. Does that make sense? Awesome. Guys, this is a wonderful, wonderful ministry. We are actually sending a team down to El Salvador in July to spend some time with them, to be with the community, and see the work that they're doing. So please... Take part in this and be a part of it. It's a wonderful way to serve and donate and give of our resources. Sound good? Awesome. Are we awake? (laughs) We were all gassed up before. Let's go. We got to keep it going, guys. But let uh, let me pray with us before we start, and we'll get started. Dear Lord, lead us to a greater profession with our lips, a greater adoration with our hearts, and a greater devotion with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, I played sports for a super long time. I played football for 11 years, which means I got hit in the head a lot. Some of you were like, ah, makes sense why, when I talk to him now. Yeah, I got hit in the head a lot. But after that, I transitioned. When I got done with football in college, I started bodybuilding. I got super into working out. I was already into it before with all the activities and all the other things I did. But this was like the transition where it was like, I'm gonna get jacked. I'm gonna get swole. I'm gonna look massive. And with that... Everybody knows, if you really get into that, there is one man that kind of paved the way for people who bodybuild. The trailblazer of bodybuilding, who would not only use his bodybuilding career as his stepping stone of success, but it would be his foundation into Hollywood, and he would become one of the greatest action movie stars of all time. That's right, you know who I'm talking about, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, yeah. He was my guy. I was all about him. I got so into the world of Arnold. I started watching his documentaries, his interviews. I started reading books and articles, looking up his workout routines, his habits. There was just so much. And I was just like, I need more of Arnold in my life. I remember vividly remembering when the Blueprint documentary came out and it talked about his journey and his success on how he became a bodybuilder. And he was like, legends are not born they have built. And I was like, you're right. I'm going to be a legend. It's going to be incredible. And then I remember specifically that influenced my diet. Now, many of you know, diet is super important in life, but especially in activity and working out. And there are two types of people in this room. I classify myself as a carnivore. Yeah. Some of you are like, yeah, yeah. Amen. (laughs) And then there's some in here who are not. And that's that's okay. I won't hold it against you. But I remember when plant-based really became the rage, when it really came onto the scene and there was so much happening with it. I remember I was one of the people that was like super against it, like really like annoyingly against it. I'm better now, I'm kinda like, oh whatever. But I was really against it. And I remember when I first met Pastor Ty. Man, I tell you, I could not go a week without hearing something about, I'm plant-based, I like to eat this, I eat this instead of this now, and I was like, okay, we get it. You like to eat the food that my food eats. We get it. We get it. And I remember, I doubled down against it a little bit. I was like, no, you can't, see? You need meat. You need protein. It's science. Hari-har-har, meat-meat-meat-meat-meat. I was probably just as annoying as the plant-based people, let's be honest, but... Then all of a sudden, a documentary came out called Game Changers. And they interviewed all these super athletes and these fitness icons and celebrities, and it was all about how beneficial it is to go plant-based. And I remember this whole time when I was all about meat and carnivorism, I remember being like, Arnold's my guy. Arnold ate meat, so therefore I eat meat. He was in peak physical condition, so I'm going to be in peak physical condition. Guess who showed up on this documentary? (laughs) the Terminator himself, Arnold Schwarzenegger, supporting plant-based. And I was like, I felt silly. You could say my argument got terminated. (laughs) But, you know, it's okay. It's okay. And then all of a sudden I was like, you know, I think Arnold has a point here. I think this plant-based thing is actually a pretty good idea. So things change. But the whole point of this Is when I looked back at Arnold, to be honest, he wasn't even all about eating meat all the time. He was actually quite open about being well-balanced in his dietary habits, eating fruits and vegetables and supplements that were quite beneficial to the body. And so it was really my perception of him as he was a meat-only carnivore guy. My point in all this is that's what Paul is doing this morning. Paul is taking the heroes of the faith. He's taking the heroes of Israel and the Jewish Christian audience at this time would be saying, look at them. They did it this way, so therefore that's why we do it this way. And he's saying, no, 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 no. If you look, it has always been this way. God has always acted in this fashion. If you've been walking through through with us, we've just finished chapter 3, and Paul said that God is for the Greek and the Jew, both, but each hides behind something to represent themselves before God. And at the end of chapter three, he really starts putting the hammer down to say, the only way to be declared righteous before God is through grace that is issued through faith in Christ alone. It is not works of the law that save you. And much to Pastor Tim's point last week, our boasting should be in the perfect work of Jesus because it is not our works. If it was our works that saved us, it would give us reason to boast about ourselves. We would be able to say, well, I have done this, and we have done that. And ultimately, it makes us lose sight of what God has wonderfully and graciously done through the cross of Christ. But Paul expands upon this point specifically to the Jewish Christian context in chapter 4. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 4 this morning. We will see chapter 4 is broken into two parts. We're going to be going through the first part today, I'm going through the second part next Sunday, but Paul will be doing the very thing I just illustrated with Arnold Schwarzenegger. He will be taking two heroes of Israel, and he will be saying, "This is what has actually happened." He'll be looking. He'll be taking two pinnacle characters of the Jewish faith. Paul takes them because he knows that after making his statement at the end of chapter three. Paul knows that Jewish Christians would be hesitant and actually fight against that. They would actually argue against it being through faith alone. They'd say, no, it has to be plus this. It has to be this religious tradition. And Paul is pointing at Abraham because the Jewish Christians would say, Paul, look at our father of the faith. Look at Abraham. He was justified before God because of works. To which Paul is jumping out ahead of that argument after he made the statement in chapter 3 a couple weeks ago in verse 21. If you look at Romans chapter 3 verse 21, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He is pointing to the fact that the law and the prophets bear witness to the very thing that he is talking about. He's saying, His point is that the justified identity of faith in Christ was established with Abraham and has always been God's purpose in the relational work of salvation. So with all that this morning, today, I want us to see that Paul is arguing that our justified identity is found in faith. With that, let us open to our Bibles this morning, to Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. If you don't have a Bible, Please, we want you to have one. We lead, teach, and preach here from our Bibles. So we have tables here in the sanctuary with Bibles in English and in Spanish. Please take one of those. That is free to you. That is our gift to you. We want you to have it. And, and you can also go on your phone. You can download the YouVersion Holy Bible app, and you can follow under events, Grace Point Church, and you can actually follow along with the sermon notes as well. So please do that as we walk along this morning. Everybody in Romans chapter 4? Everybody awake? Yeah, let's go. Okay, let's get started. With that, we start with verse 1. It says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? Now this verse is coming right off of what Pastor Tim taught with us last week, that no one can boast in the works of the law, that God is the God of the Jews and the Gentiles, and that God will justify those who have been circumcised in Jewish tradition by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And Paul knows that upon hearing this, that his Jewish audience, they're going to want to point to Abraham and they're going to want to look at Abraham's covenant with God and Abraham's circumcision. So verse 1 is a rhetorical question to his readers. Paul has crafted a culturally rich argument Argument for the Jewish Christian community to reiterate and defend his statement that he made previously at the end of Romans chapter 3. Side note if you're here with us and you haven't been walking with us through the series so far and you've missed the last few weeks, please go back to YouTube or our our website, gracepointvegas.com, and watch those sermons. The thing about exegetical preaching is if you haven't seen what's happened before this point, It's going to be really hard to understand the context of what is happening in the text today. So please go back and watch those. It's very important to understand the context. But continuing in verse 1, we have this rhetorical question. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Paul is very intentional with these words when putting Abraham on the scene because he is referencing Genesis chapter 15 Verse six in the Old Testament. And it's the passage in which the covenant is made between God and Abraham where God justifies Abraham by faith. And we will visit that passage shortly in the next few verses. But a few things you need to know about Abraham. If you don't know much about your Bibles, if you don't know much about the Old Testament and Abraham, these are some important things to know today. One, he is the father of Israel. He is the source of God's original covenant with the nation of Israel. Jewish teachers taught that Abraham was perfect and kept the law through circumcision. An example of the rabbi teaching comes from the book of Jubilees. Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. So they taught that he was perfect and he gained favor with God through his righteousness. And he is one of Israel's heroes. He is a pinnacle icon in the Jewish faith. And if you have no background of the Old Testament or Abraham, it's, an, it's important to keep those in mind as we walk through this. Now Paul in verse 1, once he said this, this rhetorical question would have brought Abraham's life into mind for the Jewish people. They would have started thinking about all the things that he did, all the things that they know, the testimony that he had. They would have recalled that he did some wonderful moments and he had some very faithful acts of obedience to God which I think is also a reality check for us because Paul is saying, what did he gain then? They would be asking the question, what was the point of all those righteous acts, all those good deeds, if he didn't gain anything, if he didn't earn favor with God? We need to ask ourselves this question when we walk in our own life in the faith or life in general. Am I trying to gain something before God or people with my Christian life and good works? We need to evaluate why are we walking the faith this is an important question we should regularly ask ourselves. I think this is a frequent thing in our life, is why are we doing the things we do? Because it is quite easy to start looking at our lives as a Christian and begin doing things to earn Jesus' nickels in the kingdom of heaven. We're like, I'm going to get something out of this. I'm doing this because it's, God's going to owe me something then. And it won't be too long that if you are living the Christian life without a genuine heart of faith, you can wake up one morning, and maybe you have at this point, and forget what it was all for. You wake up and you say, why why have I been living this life? What have I been doing it for? What what, What did I get out of this? It's the same here with Paul and the Jewish audience. They would have asked Paul when he was asking his rhetorical question, if it isn't good works... Of the law that saves us, what was the point of Abraham's life? What did he gain from all of that? And so Paul says, continues the question, verse one. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? And he's very intentional about saying our forefather according to the flesh, <clears throat> because This is him pointing out Jewish genealogy. This is him pointing out the Jewish family tree, if you will, because remember, it was the Jewish Christians at the time telling the Greek Christians that you cannot be in the family of God unless you become Jewish. It's Jesus, but you have to be circumcised by Jewish tradition, and then God will accept you into his family. So he's pointing at yes, you have a part in the physical line of Abraham, but it's more than that. So he's emphasizing Abraham's appointed fatherhood over the nation of Israel. And then verses two and three, it says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, that word, if. He says, if it was about works, if it was about works of obedience to God that saved us, Then we could look at Abraham, Paul is saying, and he would absolutely have something to boast about. He would be able to stand in front of all of us and go, look at my life. I did so good that I earned favor with God. I did so righteous that God had favor with me and loved me and blessed me because I was doing all these good things. And we would look at him and go, wow, what a life. He he was enough. He was good enough. He earned Favor with God. And Paul is saying this to his Jewish readers to recall that Abraham was, in fact, a great hero. He's not trying to tear down Abraham, but he is saying he was a great represent- representation of faith. And after all, Abraham, if we remember when God called him to go out to Canaan and trust in God's promise, Abraham did it. He faithfully left and he headed to Canaan to trust God and his promise. And perhaps the most significant example. Maybe if we're familiar with the Old Testament, what's the kind of huge moment in Abraham's journey that we could all like look at and go, wow, what a test of faith. Isaac, Isaac. exactly. When God asks him to sacrifice Isaac, that is a huge moment. You and I kind of would look at at that now and we we know how the story ends, but really that is an incredible thing that happens in Genesis 22. Look at Genesis 22 verses one through three. After these things... God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, I always feel like it goes like, here I am. But he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. I know we know how the story ends, but that's bonkers. If God told you to sacrifice one, one of your kids and you're just like, okay, let's settle up in the morning, like, let's go, that's unbelievable. And we would look at that and go, whoa. And I, again, I don't think it hits us as much now because we know God provides the sacrificial ram. He doesn't actually sacrifice Isaac. And God commends Abraham's faith for being obedient. But Paul's not disputing the fact that Abraham did some incredible things that were faithful to God, in which he says, he could boast about this. If you and I were talking to Abraham, could you imagine he could so boast about his life? He'd be like, yeah, how's your walk with Jesus going? Oh, church was pretty good on Sunday and community group's going pretty well. We baptize like six people and he'd be like, oh, cool. Has God ever told you to sacrifice your son? And you'd be like, you'd be real quiet. It would almost be discouraging about our own lives in the faith because we would look at it and be like, we haven't been challenged or tested in our faith the way Abraham has. Some of us, anyway. Not all. That's not a blanket statement. But it would be too easy to look at our heroes even today, to look at the heroes of the faith today and see them and boast in what they've done. I know for me, I immediately look at Billy Graham, America's preacher. What a vessel. Somebody who was so in faith with God and love with God that he preached and led massive crusades of revival through preaching and teaching of Jesus. I look at his life and sometimes I'm like, Dang, what am I doing? And I think we need to ask ourselves this. Who are we putting on a pedestal in our life right now? Who are we putting above God? What pastor, preacher, teacher, or theologian am I holding higher than God? I would even say outside of that, even if you're Christian or not Christian, what person, what icon, what celebrity, what influencer has your attention more than God does? That everything that they say is true. Everything that they do, you are just in, in support of. Trust me, I think, and I think it's valid, especially for Christians in the room. I, I can admit, I have some teachers that I really have learned from, I've grown from, and I am grateful for, but I have to be honest with myself, it's easy to idolize all of those guys and worship the faithful saints of God rather than worship God himself. And we take their word as Bible rather than taking God's word itself. And I, if, if I'm honest, I end up wanting to be more like Charles Spurgeon, Timothy Keller, John MacArthur, Alistair Baker, John Pepp, whoever it is. Sometimes I want to be more like them than I want to be like Jesus. I mean, I wake up every day and I'm like, when I grow up, I want to be Tim Fraser. <laughs> I know I got a foot to go, but I think I can really get there. Minus the Alabama Crimson Tide thing. We don't, we don't need that. But seriously, Paul is humbling our opinions of our heroes, and specifically the Jewish heroes in this context. Paul continues this in verses 2 to 3. He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham could boast before men and women, but not before who? Who could he not boast before? God, exactly, because God is perfect, he is holy, he's the Almighty. While Abraham did have many moments in his life in which he was faithful and he showed sacrificial obedience, Abraham was not able to say that his obedience gained him favor with God. None of us can say that. Rather, Paul then quotes Genesis 15.6 to make his point. It's the anchor of his argument. He even says, "What what, what, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is using the Torah in this capacity for his backing. Scholar Daniel Doriani says, putting primary focus on the fact that the word believed is a verb. But Jewish rabbis over time took it as an adjective defining Abraham's character. So rabbis would interpret Genesis 15.6 as a description of, of Abraham's faithfulness to God through obedience. And in turn, that would warrant in their mind God's favor, that Abraham earned God's favor. And scholar Daniel Doriani puts it like this when he addresses it. He says, In Hebrew, Greek, and English... Believe is a verb. To believe in God is to trust or rest in him. Paul had to, one, first, establish the correct interpretation of Genesis 15, 6, and two, present Abraham as a paragon of the faith, not of works. I think this is a learning point for all of us because we are all still going through our walk in learning about the scriptures, the Bible, God's character. Always keep learning how to read God's word. Don't ever think that you've had it figured out and learn how to appropriately interpret biblical text. You and I, we misinterpret the Bible all the time. That's how we get wild things like God only helps those who help themselves kind of thing. It's not, it's not biblical, but we misinterpret the scriptures. Just like Paul's example here to the Jewish Christians, I think it's a learning point for us to still endure and long to learn how. I would love to put the whole list up, But part of ways to do that, there's so many resources and tools available. So a wonderful article is called Interpreting Scripture, a General Introduction. It's on the Gospel Coalition's website. Go go to that and see. They, They put out steps as to how to read your Bible, how to interpret it, how to apply it appropriately. Plus, we have some wonderful cohorts here like learning how to read your Bible. So when we have those in the fall, here at Grace Point, sign up for those. Take that step of faith to start learning and growing in your knowledge of the scriptures. But back to the text. Abraham put his faith in God, and it was then that God counted, or another word for that, it could be imputed. God imputed it to Abraham as righteousness. This right here is a large-scale theological doctrine. It's called imputed righteousness. What this means is, the doctrine of imputation teaches that in the doctrine of justification, when God declares us justified in Jesus, God imputes or accredits the righteousness and suffering of Jesus to those who are in him, and conversely, imputes the sins of those redeemed to Christ. The great reformer Martin Luther called it this, the glorious exchange. Our sin becomes Christ's, and Christ's righteousness becomes ours. This is One of the most beautiful things about the Christian faith, the fact that we share in Christ's righteousness. He has taken our sin and we have received his righteousness. It is only by faith in God, in Jesus, that we can be declared righteous. That you and I, you and I can never be good enough, we can never earn it, we can never work for it. That is what Paul is continuing to stress. Abraham put his faith in God and God counted it to him as righteousness. It is God's gracious character that makes this possible through faith. Now, Paul continues his ability to kind of be able to predict what his audience is going to say, and I think that's a key point in this entire letter is he's constantly thinking ahead of what they might say to some of these statements and potential rebuttals, and he follows it with the next two verses. He says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Um, Let me put it this way. Has anybody in here seen the show Seinfeld? Yeah? Okay, I got a woo. Okay, cool. Um, It's one of my favorite sitcoms. Well, there's this episode where George Costanza, one of the main characters in it, him and his girlfriend are going out to lunch, and he has this friend named Elaine, and he asks her, hey, can we get anything for you for lunch on our way back? And she says, yeah, you can get me a big salad from the restaurant. And so George, after him and his girlfriend get done eating, they order the big salad. He gives the big salad to his girlfriend. They go back. When they get into the apartment, they walk in, and she, his girlfriend hands the big salad to Elaine. And Elaine thanks her for getting her the big salad. This really bothers George because he's the one who paid for and bought the salad. And he's thinking in his head, you gave the thank you that I deserved to her, so he doesn't. He doesn't say anything though. Being the neurotic character that he is in the show, he just lets it sit for like days, and he starts getting really mad about it, and he gets like passive aggressive. And he's like, "So how was the big salad? Was it good?" It was a big salad. Yeah, you know, like, it wasn't a cheap salad. And he keeps bringing up all these points, and she goes, what is your deal? And he finally loses it, and he goes, I was the one who bought the big salad. I was the one who did this for you. You owed me the thank you. You were obligated to show me gratitude instead of showing it to my girlfriend. It's this whole ridiculous scene. What Paul is getting at, to continue his point, is that if you and I were justified by works before God... It would become a transactional relationship between me and God, between you and God. Kind of like a relationship with our employer. Most of us can relate to having a job in which we, we go in and we do the work required of us in order to receive a paycheck, what is owed to us for our work. Paul's saying that in keeping in line with the doctrine of God's grace, God is not an employer that owes you anything. No matter what you do, no matter how good you think you are, You cannot make God owe you or obligated to give you something. And that is what the doctrine of justified by works is teaching. If you're saying you're justified by works, you're making God this, this party that's obligated to give you something because I've been good, because I've been doing all the good things and to declare me righteous for it. Where, in fact, every act by God done toward you is through nothing else but complete total and unmerited grace. That is what it is. We need to remind ourselves of this constantly. This is, this is a prayer, a breath prayer I kind of try and remind myself daily of, is God does not owe me anything. He acts out of his love and grace to me, not obligation. And if we are not careful, we can almost do this with faith. I'm gonna make an argument here, kind of a side note. We've, we've gotten far enough down in... in Christianity that I think a lot of us kind of say like it's relationship, not religion. But if we're not careful, we think we found a loophole in getting things from God or getting him to act. We phrase it like this. If I have enough faith, God will do this. If I have enough faith, this is how the outcome should work. This is what God should do. And what we end up doing is we, we think that if we have enough faith, it will obligate God to act or do something that we desire on our behalf. That's not what faith in God is. Please hear that this morning. Faith in God is trusting in the promises that He has revealed through His Word, through His Spirit, and through His church. Mainly, the promise of redemption that is found in Christ Jesus. That is the thing that we are supposed to have faith in. And it is important to know that faith is not something that you or I personally muster up or create. Otherwise, just like works, we could boast in our faith. I could say, well, look at all the faith I had. Did you see all the stuff that God did for me recently? It's because I had so much faith that he did all of that. And people would be like, what are you talking about? That's not how it works with God, though. Look at what this, this theologian says. It says, God's gracious response to a believer's faith is just that, a response saturated in his abundant grace. Paul made it clear to the church in Ephesus to understand that faith itself is a gracious gift from God. Faith is the vehicle God has fashioned to lay hold of the goodness of God poured out in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that faith in God is something that is lived out and in turn manifests itself in good works, not to be the purchase of our salvation, but rather the evidence or proof of our salvation. Because look back at verse 5 in chapter 4. It says, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This verse, I think, has to be explained in kind of tandem with the, the the previous statement I just made on God's grace. This verse is not a standing ground for lazy Christianity. If we're not, if 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 we don't pay attention, it's much like Pastor Tim spoke on wonderfully last week. If we aren't careful, we will look at Paul's letter here. And we will use it as the basis to throw out the law and throw out doing good works in our lives. When in fact, that is not what he's getting at. And if we remember, Pastor Tim preached last week at the end of chapter three, verse 31, it said, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. It's, it's like this posture of, I prayed the prayer, I believe in Jesus, I'm living in God's grace, so I can do whatever I want now. I don't need to do those things anymore because that's the law. No, 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 no. It is not that we rid ourselves of good works, but rather what Paul is trying to do is say we put them in their proper place in understanding God's work that is happening in you and me to conform us to the beauty of Jesus. That in fact, when we live out a life of faith, it will bring forward good works that display God's glory and not our own. Secondly, this verse is a big punch by Paul because in this verse, he's making a statement that puts Abraham in the category of ungodly. And again, you and I can kind of see that now as like being a standard known fact, but this is huge because the Jewish Christians would have heard this and they kind of would have gasped. It would have been one of those, wait, you're saying Abraham was ungodly? Because if we take away the merit of works, then Abraham has nothing to stand on. As great as he was, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, Abraham was ungodly. We see multiple accounts in the Old Testament where while Abraham had faith in God, he made some decisions that absolutely did not reflect that. In Genesis 12 and 16 and 20, we see multiple times where he lets pagan rulers take his wife, Sarah, to save his own life, to save his own skin, And then we actually see a moment where where he doubts God and he's actually kind of complaining to God when God is establishing the covenant with him. God basically says, you have my favor, I am your reward. And Abraham responds with, yeah, but you kind of promised me that I'd have a kid and you haven't done that yet. And God's like, are you kidding me? And even in that moment of doubt and complaining, God still pours his grace out on Abraham. Paul is saying that it is only the ungodly who can be declared righteous by God because that is all that he has to work with. All of us are ungodly. No one is righteous, so therefore he can only redeem ungodly people. And Abraham, as great as he was, falls into this category. He falls under the banner of the ungodly in need of grace just like we fall into that same category. And then Paul then draws a comparison. This is where David comes into play, the, the second hero of the faith of Israel. In Romans 4, 6 through 9, he quotes David here. He says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul is quoting Psalm 32, and in his use of David, another hero of Israel, because David is seen as Israel's greatest king by the Jewish community, Paul is using him as his framework that even David is expressing that it is the sinner that is forgiven who is truly blessed. Because David himself, even though he was a great king, and this would have appealed to the Jewish understanding, they would have known that he was a great king king, but David committed some atrocious sins. He did some terrible things. He slept with Bathsheba, who was another man's wife. He got her pregnant. He murdered her husband, and then he takes her as his wife to try and cover it all up. And then he does some additional things later down the line to his family that lead to his absolute downfall. And What Paul is doing is this. He's putting Abraham up on the board. And he's putting David up on the board as a comparison for two for the two. He says, Abraham, father of Israel. He was a great guy. David, king of Israel. He was pretty great, but he had some pretty terrible sins. What was the common thread between them? They both needed God's grace. They still needed God's grace. And what David says, when, when David says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are cov- covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count as sin. It is what David is alluding to, is that David is bringing forth a different perspective to praise God that men are not justified by their works. Because he's saying, if Abraham wasn't declared righteous by his works, by his obedience to God, then I can also be praising God and conclude that I can be joyful that he has not condemned me for my sins. It is not about what I have done. It is about what Jesus has done. Even though David had some pretty mortal sins on his resume, he has this beautiful poem of confession and repentance to the Lord. And this is incredibly good news to all of us. All of us in here right now, take a moment and realize it is not about what you can do. It never has been. God has just loved you because that's who he is. That is who he is. He realizes that there's no, David realizes that there's no amount of works that can cover his sin. Maybe some of you in here are carrying a burden of some sin in your life right now that you know you've committed. Can I tell you a little something that David's saying right now? He's saying, throw away the list. God has. Throw away that list, because God, if you are in Jesus, if you are in Christ, God has thrown away the list of your sins, and you can throw it away too. God has wiped the slate clean because of his love and grace, and all of us here who are in Jesus should take this last verse that David wrote, and I think we can kind of tweak it and use it as a reminder. It's almost like David is issuing a reminder to you and me to say, insert your name and say, Andrew. You are blessed because the Lord will not count your sin against you. Sincerely, David. Praise and thanks be to God. Because that's what Paul is getting at. It's not about works, and thank the Lord of heaven and earth that it's not about works. Praise and thanks be to God. And he says in verse 9 and 10, to, to finish, get close to finishing it up here, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? or? also for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? If It was not after, but it was before he was circumcised. In true Pauline fashion, he gives us another rhetorical question. He basically looks at us and says, what do we do with all this? If this is true, who is this blessing for? Is it only for the circumcised? Is it only for those who have Jewish heritage and practice and profession of faith? Or is it for the Gentile? Is it for the Greek? Is it for the uncircumcised? If we say that it was faith that set Abraham right before God, how or when was it reckoned? Meaning when was it counted to him as righteousness? When did this moment happen? And he gets very practical he looks at the logic of the sequence of events. He looks at Abraham's life, and he says, did the moment God declared Abraham righteous, did that moment, um, did that, moment that he made the covenant with Abraham happen before or after his circumcision? And Paul says it was before he was even circumcised. In one of the commentaries I read this week, one of the scholars even mentioned that Abraham had already been called by God and was walking in a relationship with God for about 29 years prior to his circumcision. The point in this is this. I think what we can take practically from this when we look at our lives in, in the faith of other Christians is just because another Christian is not where you are at or done what you have done, or maybe even thinks the way you think, that does not mean that they have not been declared righteous by God through faith. That's sanctification. That's what Pastor Tim was preaching on last week. It's the journey of the faith. Pastor Tim said wonderfully that we will struggle with sin, we will learn, we will grow, and sometimes at a snail's pace. Trust me, I've met you guys. I'm just kidding. It's me too. It's me too. Sometimes we're one step forward, 15 steps back. But God's so good. At the end of it, it's not about how efficient we are because God's grace is sufficient. So Paul is saying by that rationale, we can even make the argument that if circumcision is the sign of becoming a Jew, this is a pretty bold statement, so, so tune in. He's saying, theoretically, we can say that Abraham not only falls into the category of the ungodly, but that he wasn't even a Jew yet in accordance to the law of circumcision and God had already chosen him. God called him, God made a promise to him and declared him righteous by faith. That is a mind-boggling statement for the audience that's listening for his readers. And he says, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Uh that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. What he is saying is, is circumcision is the seal to his faith in the same fashion that baptism today for you and I is the seal in our faith. Through the practice of baptism, if you remember, we celebrate the public declaration and expression of faith that is rooted in Christ. Paul is showing us that it is the same way with circumcision, and it was the same for Abraham. It was not circumcision that issued Abraham righteousness, but it was an evidence of the righteousness that he had already received through faith. Church, the the, the finisher in this, the beauty in this, is that Paul has actually not only used Abraham and David, predominantly Abraham, but to debunk some misconceptions by the Jewish Christian audience. But he sets Abraham up to be this wonderful example of the one that is yet to come, or that would come, to be the pinnacle of faith. Paul says this was done to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, meaning that God intentionally made the covenant with Abraham prior to his circumcision so that way Gentiles who were uncircumcised could have access to the same faith. He is saying that Abraham is similar to Jesus and that this faith is actually available to all who are outside of the Jewish bloodline and Jewish tradition. And then Paul makes his finishing point that it wouldn't be for those who just We're circumcised. He's basically saying, just because you were circumcised does not mean you're in the family of God. It does not mean that you are partaken in this faith. Just like how baptism does not save you. It doesn't make you right with God, but rather, he says, it's because they walked in the footsteps of the faith that Abraham did before his circumcision. Paul is saying this righteousness is for those who have not been circumcised, but they continue... not only been circumcised, but it's because they continued walking in the living faith with God. Church, for example, when someone is baptized, to give you a practical example, we know that it is not baptism that saves them. It is the faith in Christ that occurred prior to baptism that saved them, and the walk of faith before and after the baptism event that lives as proof or the fruit of union with Jesus. We see that God has been operating in this same space all throughout biblical history. And now that you and I can be crafted into the family of God, you and I can say that Abraham is our father of faith. God is the the ultimate father for sure, but Abraham was instituted as the father of faith when God appointed him as father of Israel. We are in that same family now because of faith. It is because faith in Christ takes place that we can also partake in the beauty and splendor and glory of Jesus and what he's accomplished on the cross. Something that we can take in closing, I think, just, just marinate on, sit on, is where am I putting my faith outside of Jesus? What, what, what is it in life right now that I'm saying it's Jesus plus this makes me a Christian? And what is keeping me from putting my faith in Jesus? Perhaps some, some of us need to repent of, yeah, I've added something to salvation. I've said it's Jesus plus this, just like Pastor Tim talked about last week. He, he did so wonderful where Jesus plus something equals nothing, but Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And perhaps you are hearing this for the first time, and you're here and you, you've, you've heard church your whole life, you've heard Jesus your whole life, but maybe for once you're hearing that He doesn't demand works out of you. He doesn't demand. He's not saying you have to work your way to salvation. Maybe you're hearing for the first time he is calling you to faith, to trust in him as your life and your identity, that there is gracious love and grace from God waiting for you in the person of Jesus. In either regard, it is only through the wonder and awe of Jesus that we are declared righteous and sealed in the promise of God. Let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for just this time that we can gather freely and worship and praise your name and exalt you as King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you, Lord, for your Son, Jesus. Thank you that it is not through traditions or works or good deeds that we earn our favor with you or salvation, but rather you have poured it out in the glory of Jesus Christ, your Son. Lord, lead us to a faith that produces works, not for our own glory, but for your kingdom and for the salvation of lost souls and the defeat of the enemy. We love you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' most precious and holy name. Amen.